When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In September 1982, the Washington Post ran a story about a spiritual celebration called the East Coast Medicine Wheel Gathering, held on the Hudson River in upstate New York. The celebration was led by a man named Sun Bear, an Ojibwe born on a reservation in northern Minnesota. The gathering was an extension of Sun Bear's Bear Tribe Medicine Society, an intentional community located on over 100 acres of land outside of Spokane, Washington, focused on self-reliance and living in spiritual harmony with nature. The spiritual gathering that September included chanting, pipe smoking, and dancing alongside seminars on topics such as earth awareness, planetary guidance, crystal consciousness, and the path of power. One of the biggest pieces of advice offered by Sun Bear during this gathering was for followers to hug a tree. A pine tree, he told the newspaper, has a tremendous stabilizing effect on people with a lot of nervous energy. Native people feel that everything has a life force in it. And when you can reach out and embrace a tree, you can get the energy from it into you. And this will help re-strengthen your own energy. The teachings of the Bear Tribe were based on Sun Bear's visions, which came mostly, according to him anyway, in dreams. The visions told me that the time would come when people would have to turn back to a sense of balance, of harmony with each other and the earth in order to survive. And I knew that the native prophecies spoke of a time when men, after they'd gone so far from the way of the creator, that they would look to the Native American people for their direction. Because look, these people lived here for thousands of years, and the planet was beautiful, and now we are about to destroy it, end quote. People flocked to Sun Bear from the 1970s to the 1990s for his teachings on native spirituality and harmony with the natural world. In an era marked by environmental disasters, increasing awareness of climate change, booming capitalism, perceived waves of crime and urbanization, people sought refuge in the promise of peace and harmony offered by indigenous religious principles. And of course, Sun Bear wasn't alone. With him at the gathering in New York was a woman who went by Diani Yuahu, who claimed to be descendant of a line of Cherokee priests and a tribal, quote unquote, sacred peacekeeper. There were others, too, who became well known in New Age religious circles for their teaching on Native American spirituality, such as Lynn Andrews, who wrote several books in the 1980s with names like Medicine Woman and Crystal Woman, 
or Carlos Castaneda, who became wildly famous in the 1970s for his anthropological accounts of Yaqui shamanism, or Ruth B.B. Hill, whose best-selling novel, Hanta Yo, described the spirituality of the Lakota Sioux based purportedly on anthropological research. There was clearly a market for native spirituality. But there was something specific about the market eager to buy native spirituality. It was white people, not Native Americans, who were searching for something quote-unquote real and quote-unquote natural in a world that they believed was losing touch with the earth. Indians, on the other hand, resented people like Sun Bear, Lynn Andrews, and Carlos Castaneda, who packaged sacred elements of indigenous religious practices for sale. Worse still, Indian activists argued that these spiritual leaders misrepresented, exaggerated, and even outright invented the practices, teachings, and beliefs of Native Americans for the purpose of making money and cultivating influence. So, at the height of Sun Bear's popularity, some Native American groups sought to find ways to fight back. Today, we're exploring Native American spirituality, quote-unquote, spiritual hucksters and plastic shamans in the dense and complex landscape of New Age religion. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Happy summer, listeners. We want to thank all our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous auger and excavator-level patrons. Lauren, Edward, Iris, Denise, Susan, Agnes, Peggy, Colin, Maddie, Maria, Jesse, and Hannah. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. So let's start by laying a little bit of groundwork on the history of Native spirituality in the United States to get a sense of how generic, quote unquote, Native spirituality came to be a central aspect of New Age religion. Unsurprisingly, Native Americans were not protected by the First Amendment, which, of course, guarantees religious freedom to American citizens. After all, Indians were not American citizens until 1924. Much to the contrary, actually, Native American religious ceremonies were often interpreted incorrectly by white Americans as signs of resistance. Take, for instance, the ghost dance religion, which we talked about extensively in an episode from a couple years ago. The ghost dance religion preached that Indians should stop fighting, embrace peace, and seek out agriculture and education in order to find a way forward with white Americans. But that message was grossly misinterpreted by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the United States Army, and Benjamin Harrison's administration, who all believed that the ghost dancers wanted to kill whites, which helped set the stage for the massacre of the Lakota at Wounded Knee in 1890. But while the ghost dance was one stark example, the effort to quash Native American religion and spirituality was much larger. In 1883, at the urging of Secretary of the Interior, Henry Teller, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, set in place the Code of Indian Offenses, which later became known as the Religious Crimes Code. 
This law was intended to crack down on many of the cultural practices that Teller believed kept Indians from assimilating into white American culture. So things like sacred dances and songs, plural marriage, and the existence of shamans and medicine workers. In a letter to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Hiram Price, in 1882, Teller wrote, quote, I desire to call your attention to what I regard as a great hindrance to the civilization of the Indians, these the continuance of the old heathenish dances, such as the sun dance, the scalp dance, etc. These dances, or feasts, as they are sometimes called, ought to, in my judgment, be discontinued. And if the Indians now supported by the government are not willing to discontinue them, the agents should be instructed to compel such discontinuance. Teller wasn't really motivated by a desire to make the Indians into Christians, but rather the belief that these practices were hindrances to civilization. A major problem within Indian rituals was that they kept Indians from understanding the world in white American terms, right? Teller mentioned two practices as key examples of this stunted civilization. And again, you know, all of this, you know, really gross language about civilization, not coming from us, coming from 19th century Americans, okay? Um, Stunted in heavy quotation marks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like take all of this just like within that context. So he he mentions two practices that stand out particularly to him, gift giving and medicine working. He writes to Hiram Price, quote, One great obstacle to the acquirement of property by the Indian is the very general custom of destroying or distributing his property on the death of a member of his family. Frequently, on the death of an important member of the family, all the property accumulated by its head is destroyed or carried off by the mourners, and his family is left in desolation and want, end quote. This practice, Teller believed, kept Indians from developing the American practice of acquiring property that would then be passed down to one's heirs. Medicine workers rivaled the authority of American institutions and kept Indian children from attending schools where they would be, quote unquote, civilized. In response to Teller's recommendation, the Bureau of Indian Affairs drew up the Code of Indian Offenses. The code established special courts called the Courts of Indian Offenses, which were each made up of three Indians hand-selected by a government representative or agent of each Indian agency. And just a a quick side note to say, um, I think we talked about this in the Ghost Dance episode as well, but agencies were almost like diplomatic centers located in Indian territories and reservations, which served as sort of the point of contact between Indians and the United States government. So the Indian agent... Um, at any particular agency could bring individual Indians before this court to be tried for offenses against the code, such as leading a dance or a ritual or practicing polygamy. Those found guilty were punished with fines, denied rations, and sometimes imprisoned. In the 1920s, though, progressive era Indian reformers and activists began to push back against the regulations prohibiting traditional spiritual rituals. Several Pueblo activists, for instance, included the right to participate in religious ceremonies uh, in their protest against land grabs by the New Mexico government. They believed that if the tribe was to survive um, and have the community's strength to insist on their sovereignty, that they needed to enact the religious dances that held their people together. 
These protests were somewhat successful, and in 1924, New Mexico allowed ceremonies to take place, as long as there was no mandate that all Pueblo members take part. In 1933, John Collier, a sociologist and reformer, was appointed commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs by Franklin Roosevelt. Collier had long been an opponent of the Dawes Act and Code of Indian Offenses and had lived in the Taos Pueblo community for a year studying Pueblo culture. Collier had gone on to work for Indian Reform as the researcher for the Indian Welfare Committee of the Progressive Reform Organization, the General Federation of Women's Clubs. In 1934, one of Collier's first acts as Indian Affairs Commissioner was to rescind the Code of Indian Offenses. Collier was not messing around with his insistence that Indian agents stop interfering with religious ceremonies. In his 1934 policy letter to agents, he wrote, quote, No interference with Indian religious life or ceremonial expression will hereafter be tolerated. The cultural liberty of Indians in all respects to be considered equal to that of any non-Indian group. In no case shall punishments for statutory violations or for improprieties be so administered as to constitute an interference with or to imply a censorship over the religious or cultural life, Indian or other. But of course, interference didn't just stop overnight. Native religious practices and ceremonies often ran into other kinds of laws. In 1940, for instance, the Fish and Wildlife Service, as part of their attempts to protect dwindling eagle populations, prohibited the taking of bald or golden eagle parts, which often included eagle feathers, feathers which were, of course, part of many important Indian religious ceremonies. Um, And I can say just anecdotally that this continues to be an issue up in in very upstate New York in like the Adirondacks region where the um, Aquasasne Mohawk reservation is. I know my dad ran into this sometimes as a game warden where members of the tribes have different um, like hunting rules and regulations, right? And so like sometimes there would be like conflicts where like a game warden would be like, hey, you can't do this. And they'd be like, well, actually I can because I'm a member of the tribe and you know, that would sort of create confusion. So it's still an right. issue. Well, and the, I'll just throw out a really good book. Uh, Paige Rabeman's book, Authentic Indians, yes. is about um, uh, a lot of tribes in the Northwest kind of dealing with those same types of issues. So Yeah, absolutely. That's that a great there. book. Um, and, and conflicts over dances themselves also never stopped. As late as 1971, tribal police were still arresting Lakota sun dancers. Inspired in part by the harassment of Native American spiritual leaders, among many, many other, you know, very serious issues, um, three men, George Mitchell, Dennis Banks, and Clyde Bellacourt, all um, Chippewa, and um, Russell Means, a member of the Oglala tribe, founded the American Indian Movement. One of Ames, I should say, American Indian Movement goes by the, the acronym AIM, so you'll hear me use that term a lot. So one of AIM's first and most famous actions was the 19-month-long occupation of Alcatraz Island in protest of the United States government's centuries-long project of seizing Indian land. A year later, members of AIM attended a Sundance led by Leonard Crowdog on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. 
Leonard Crowdog was a Lakota medicine man deeply involved in Indian activism. This was a particularly important moment and a powerful moment for the American Indian movement. While AIM called for a return to traditional Indian ways of life, most of its members had been born and raised in urban areas and didn't really have strong connections to their own tribal roots. Mitchell and Banks, for instance, were both born and raised in Minneapolis. According to religious studies scholar Lee Irwin, quote, the spiritual rebirth of Indian rights was affirmed as a union between traditional religious and political leaders espousing a revival of Native identity and a rebirth of Native religious practices as a means for political empowerment, end quote. We'll come back to this event um, in, um, the, on the Pine Ridge Reservation and its larger significance in just a minute. Even though the Bureau of Indian Affairs Commissioner John Collier had called a halt to government interference with Indian cultural expression in the 1930s, it took until the 1970s, after considerable pressure by the American Indian movement, for Indian religious practice to be formally protected. In 1973, the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act required that the Secretary of the Interior turn over Indian governance to Indians themselves. And in 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act banned compulsory education in boarding schools for Indian children. Most relevant to our purposes, in 1978, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, or ERFA, was passed. But even legislation wasn't quite enough to make all Indian religious ceremonies legal, especially when they came into conflict with other kinds of laws. This was particularly thorny when ERFA collided with drug laws. Peyote, a small cactus that grows in the semi-arid regions of Texas, has been used in Indian religious ceremonies in the U.S. since at least the late 19th century, though it has been used in Mexico for you know, centuries longer. But while ERFA federally protective Native Americans' right to religious expression, including the use of peyote, it didn't stop border patrols or police from harassing Indians for possession of the substance. In 1994, Congress passed an amendment to ERFA that stated that, quote, the use, possession, or transportation of peyote by an Indian for bona fide traditional ceremonial purposes in connection with the practice of a traditional Indian religion is lawful and shall not be prohibited by the United States or any state, end quote. I mentioned we'd come back to that moment in 1972 when members of AIM attended the Crow Dog Sundance on the Pine Ridge Reservation. One of the early weaknesses of AIM was that it didn't have close ties with Indians on reservations um, and was made up of largely younger Native Americans focused, understandably, on modern issues. Attending the Sundance gave them a tie not only to the reservation, but also to the spiritual. The next year, AIM staged another direct action, this time near the Pine Ridge Reservation at Wounded Knee, the site of the 1890 massacre. Members of AIM occupied the territory for 71 days. The reasons for the occupation were mixed. For members of the Oglala, the, the band of the Sioux um, nearest to uh, Wounded Knee, the protest had a specific goal, to unseat uh, a corrupt tribal president. But 
aim had a bigger purpose to draw attention to the U.S. government's history of abuses as well as its failure to fulfill treaties. The protest didn't solve anything overnight, of course, but it did draw a lot of national attention to Wounded Knee and to AIM. This is the protest that um, inspired Marlon Brando to turn down his 1973 Oscars. I, Oscar, I think, for The Godfather 2, if I'm correct. It's either The Godfather or Godfather 2. Um, and instead send a representative, a Native American woman, to kind of give a, a statement and, and turn down the award on his behalf. And if I'm correct, he also was at Wounded Knee, um, as were many other celebrities during this time. So this was a this was incredibly effective in getting national attention. And, and it was, you know, they were very effective in getting celebrities to help platform it as well, use their sort of national platform to get that attention. The protest, of course, also had the effect of reinvigorating interest in traditional spiritual practices among Indians themselves. Around the same time, an old book, first published in 1932, but republished in 1971, was making Lakota spirituality publicly accessible. Black Elk Speaks, published by a poet named John G. Nyhart, is the oral history of Nicholas Black Elk, an Oglala Lakota man, an Oglala Lakota man who had been a leader of the ghost dance and lived through the Battle of Little Bighorn as well as Wounded Knee. When it was first published, it didn't get much attention, but in the 1970s, it was quickly becoming hugely important, both as historical source material, but also as a religious touchstone. Um, and also as a quick aside, it's important to note that or know that scholars have debated and really continue to debate how much Nyhart's, uh, Nyhart influenced the way Black Elk's recollections are retold. Um, Nyhart was a poet and he also invested in a kind of tragic last of his kind narrative for Black Elk. And so scholars now try to take this source kind of with a grain of salt, so to speak, basically saying that Nyhart, you know, kind of put his own voice to sure. Black Elk, right? Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, but in his in the introduction to the 1979 edition of the book, um, a writer, activist, and professor of Native American studies, and himself a member of Standing Rock Nation, Vine Deloria, wrote that, quote, the most important aspect of the book is not its effect on the non-Indian populace who wished to learn something of the beliefs of the Plains Indians, but upon the contemporary generation of young Indians who have been aggressively searching for roots of their own in the structure of a universal reality. To them, the book has become a North American Bible of all tribes, end quote. After reading Black Elk Speaks when it was originally published in the 1930s, a religious anthropologist named Joseph Epps Brown sought out Black Elk to interview him further about Lakota religion, and then later published his interviews in a book called The Sacred Pipe, Black Elk's account of the seven rites of the Aglala Sioux. Between the two texts, modern Indians had a rare touchstone for learning about traditional spirituality. Primed by the writing of Black Elk, 
When AIM embraced the Lakota Sundance, the movement sort of adopted religious practice and spiritual belief that was uniquely Lakota, but helped it become universally Indian. Right. So we see how uh, these practices and and rites, ceremonial rites, that were specifically Lakota end up sort of becoming universalized and becoming just Native American beliefs and practices. Does that make sense? Be- just because it was sort of the the Lakota that were, were at sort of the center of national attention about this. So as Lakota religion became a kind of universal belief for many Native Americans, it also started to drift out to white Americans. When Joseph Epps Brown interviewed Black Elk about the specifics of Lakota religion, he framed it as a world religion accessible to all seekers. Black Elk himself also described Lakota beliefs and traditions in a way that paralleled Catholicism, which he had converted to in 1904. So this is it adds a really interesting dynamic to the book because Black Elk is actually sort of translating his recollections and memories about Lakota religion through his current faith, which is Roman Catholicism. Um, Black Elk rendered the Lakota concept of Wakantanka, usually understood as the divine sacredness of the universe, as God, capital G, God, for instance. Here's a quote from The Sacred Pipe that explains how Black Elk conceptualized the Lakota parallel to Jesus Christ. Quote, We've been told by the white men, or at least by those who are Christian, that God sent to men his son. And we have been told that Jesus the Christ was crucified, but that he shall come again at the last judgment, the end of this world or cycle. This I understand and know that it is true. But the white men should know that for the red people, too, it was the will of Wakantanka, the great spirit, that an animal turn itself into a two-legged person in order to bring the most holy pipe to his people. And we, too, were taught that it was white buffalo cow woman who brought our sacred pipe um, and who will appear again at the end of this world, a coming we Indians know is not very far off. End quote. They also describe um, in the texts the seven sacred rites of the Lakota faith. Um, and please forgive me if my pronunciations of these are, are wrong. I am not a Lakota speaker. Um, the Kanupa, or the sacred pipe ceremony. The Inipi, or the sweat lodge ceremony. The Hanble Chia, the vision quest. The Wiwang Wichipi, the sun dance. The Hunkapi, or the making of relatives. The Ishnata Awi Chaloin, or the preparation for adulthood, and the Tapa Wakan Yayepi, the throwing of the ball. These resonated, these seven rites resonated with the seven rites of Catholicism baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, reconciliation, anointing of the sick, marriage, and ordination. Um, failed Catholic here had to go and like Google what the seven rites of Catholicism were because I couldn't remember. I was like, wait. What what is it? What's the what's the other one? Oh, reconciliation. Okay. I didn't know you started your life as a Catholic. I did. I oh, I very much did. Yes. Okay. Um so in the Sacred Pipe, both Black Elk and Joseph Epps Brown sort of rendered Lakota religion as both an accessible world religion and also as a parallel to Christianity, both which made it much more relatable for non-Indians. 
When Black Elk died in 1950, his nephew, Frank Fools Crow, succeeded him as the accepted Lakota spiritual leader and authority. Fools Crow was very involved in AIM activism and joined them in the 1973 occupation of Wounded Knee. But Fools Crow also believed that it was spiritually critical that the Lakota share their religion with others, both non-Lakota Indians and non-Indians. This was a requirement of the faith, he believed, because the spiritual universe included all humans, not just Lakota, based on the central symbol of the medicine wheel. The medicine wheel, also called the sacred hoop, is a symbol in Lakota that represents the whole universe, the four directions, the continuous circle of life and death, and other symbols are depicted within it. The medicine wheel also contains four directional colors. In other words, each quadrant of the wheel has both a direction, north, south, east, west, and a color, red, black, yellow, and white, associated with it. Frank Fool's Crow taught that the directional colors represented the four nations of the world, or, uh, quote, red Indians, yellow Asians, black Africans, and white Europeans. His racial division was obviously reductive, but it speaks to the way that Fool's Crow believed Lakota religion belonged to the world rather than just to the tribe. In a book of interviews with artist Thomas Mayles, Fool's Crow also explained that he believed that the Lakota were designated to be an intercessor between Wakan Tonka and the rest of humanity. Reflecting the belief that the faith must be shared, the tribe often brings in outsiders in adoption ceremonies and invites non-Indians to view and to take part in their ceremonies. I think it's worth quoting Suzanne Owen, a religious studies scholar who I relied on really heavily for this episode. Um, I think it's worth sort of quoting her here to sum this stuff up. Quote, the Lakota have become the primary source of Native American spirituality appropriated by natives who are disconnected to their from their own traditions and non-natives due to, on the one hand, the Lakota's historical and continued resistance to the government, attracting the attentions of AIM and other counterculturalists that include non-natives, and on the other hand, the willingness of Lakota holy men to preserve their religious traditions in printed form with the aid of non-native authors. End quote. So this is why she argues that when today it's super common to go somewhere, say, like Lilydale, New York, and take part in a sweat lodge or do something that's billed as a vision quest or not some other kind of native ritual. It's because these specifically Lakota religious traditions became universalized through the activism of AIM and the popular publication of medicine men like Black Elk and Fool's Crow. But it wasn't long before both Indians and non-Indians alike were capitalizing on the interest in Native American spirituality. New Age spirituality, the name given to a broad and diverse set of alternative religious beliefs and practices, boomed in the 1970s and 1980s, including everything from yoga and astrology to crystals and aromatherapy. 
the countercultural movement of the late 1960s had created a generation rejecting old forms of authority, such as the hierarchies of the Christian church, and seeking new, less rigid ways of being in touch with their spirituality that, generally speaking, were more in alignment with their progressive social beliefs. Generally, the quote-unquote new age refers to the idea that humanity is moving towards or should be moving towards a coming era of spiritual realization and freedom. Can I pause you for a second Mm -hmm. and just say that like the way that I have to think of this, like the idea of the new age that we're moving towards something is it is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Oh Lord. <laughs> like that is. And, and in, so like, that song is going on in your brain as you're. Yes. And, and mm-hmm. like, it's very dorky. And actually I read something where it's like an astrologer was like, no, 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 no. It's not the dawning of the age of Aquarius. It's got like the astrology wrong in the lyrics of the song, <laughs> but that reflects what the mindset was about what new age religion was, right. It was supposed to bring about, the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Right. It's so. like a, 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 a mil, what, millennium. millennium. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's a form like, of millennialism. Yeah. 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 Religious studies scholar Hugh Urban argues that the new age is not actually all that new, but rather a continuation of new religious movements and revivals that are super common in American history and which we've talked about before. So things like the first and the second great awakening, uh, new 19th century belief systems like spiritualism, Mormonism, and philosophical and communitarian movements like Fourierism and transcendentalism. The new age is marked particularly by the focus on individual development and spiritual seeking. Religion scholar Marianne Bowman described this as a kind of spiritual toolkit where people seek, quote, whatever spiritual tools work for her or him at even any given time. Uh, The concept, then, of the medicine wheel, the sweat lodge, and the vision quest were exported from Lakota practices as tools that seemed profound but also accessible, largely due to the popularity of Black Elk Speaks and the Sacred Pipe. During this boom in New Age religion, a couple of people stood out as particularly prominent teachers of Native American spirituality, Carlos Castaneda, Vincent LaDuke, better known as Sunbear, and Lynn Andrews. We're going to give a little background on each of these figures and bear with us because they're each really different and because they're, you know, kind of enigmatic New Age religious leaders. It's it's also kind of hard to describe them or their teachings in ways that are super clear or linear or short, right? So anthropology graduate student Carlos Castaneda published a book in 1968 called The Teachings of Don Juan, followed by many sequels, which purported to be the result of interviews and research he conducted with a Yaqui shaman named Don Juan Matus. In his writing, he describes how Don Juan put Castaneda through shamanic training, leading him through ceremonies using peyote and psychedelic mushrooms. The book was massively popular and found an eager audience with the counterculture. For instance, Jim Morrison was a big fan. John Lennon referred to his wife Yoko Ono as his personal Don Juan. The writer William Burroughs referenced Don Juan numerous times in his writing. And George Lucas based the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi on the shaman, which blew my gourd. (laughs) 
It was like, okay. what? I got to dive into that footnote now. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Um, it is absolutely worth doing. Um, so Castaneda was granted his PhD in 1973, but embraced his new identity as a shaman rather than pursue academia. Apparently, Don Juan named Castaneda the, quote, last Nahual of the Yaqui, inheriting a centuries-old lineage of Yaqui spiritual leadership, and Castaneda began to describe himself as having magical powers, including the ability to read minds and shapeshift. Castaneda himself became a mysterious religious teacher, bringing students into his home in L.A., where he led his acolytes, mostly beautiful young women, through his own form of shamanic training. Sun Bear, who was an Ojibwe, was born in 1929 on the White Earth Reservation in northwest Minnesota. In the 1950s, Sun Bear was an army deserter and an actor, appearing in the Western television show Brave Eagle, and went on to found the Bear Tribe Medicine Society, based on a vision that told him that he needed to bring the medicine wheel quote, back to this land as places of healing, sharing, and teachings for Native and non-Native alike. In the 1970s, Sun Bear and the Bear Tribe acquired a plot of land in Washington State, which they bought with a down payment of cash, silver, and turquoise jewelry, according to his memoir. Which I want to see the receipts on that. I want to see the receipts that he gave someone turquoise jewelry for land. expensive. What are you talking about? I'm not joking. Um, And so there they created a community that lived rough with only one power source and small, simple cabins for sleeping. A few years later, the Bear Tribe began to hold what they called medicine wheel gatherings, traveling across the U.S. to spread Sun Bear's philosophy. According to promotional materials from a 1991 gathering, they promised that a gathering would, quote, give you the opportunity to experience the teachings of Native people, their traditions, their way of living, and their prophecies through lectures, workshops, and participation in ceremonies. Sun Bear wrote several books, many of which argued that a great environmental disaster was coming and urged people to prepare spiritually, but also uh, learn to live off the land. Most of Sun Bear's students and followers were white people, such as the two successors of the Bear Tribe, which is now called the Panther Lodge Bear Tribe Medicine Society, which is a real <laughs> mouthful. Uh, and these people were Marlise Waburn Wind and Wind Daughter, who are both white women. Today, membership in the tribe is $60, and events usually cost between two and $300. Lynn Andrews is a white woman from Beverly Hills who published a narrative in 1981 called Medicine Woman, which almost certainly took its cues from Castaneda's The Teachings of Don Juan. In the book, which please just read, it's it's worth it. Andrews described going to an art gallery with a psychiatrist friend and being drawn to a sepia-toned photograph of a Native American, quote-unquote, marriage basket. But when she called the gallery the next day to learn more about the photograph, she was told there was no such item, and her friend had no recollection of ever seeing it. Apparently, this experience sent her into some kind of tailspin, culminating in a waking dream where she saw a little girl handing her the marriage basket. She freaked out, 
but got herself cleaned up and took herself to a dinner party, which is one of my favorite things. She's like, oh, my God, I had this vision. I need to get ready for this dinner party. Yeah, I have this thing I have to do. (laughs) Right. Um, And and of course, this dinner party was at her friend's house in Bel Air, um, where she was introduced to a medicine man who was at a dinner party in Bel Air Air. named Haye Maya Host's Storm, um, who himself was a a big figure in this time period. Um, Then there's this completely insane scene where Haye Maya Host's like, hypnotizes all of the very drunk dinner party guests because they're being insufferable so that he and Lynn can have a conversation about the marriage basket. And he tells her to go seek out two Canadian medicine women who are vaguely Lakota, but also somehow Navajo who can teach her about her vision. If this is sounding confusing, it, I mean, I am not like editorializing here. This is literally no man. I, that's um, a pretty good uh, power to have. Like, no, you drunk people over there. Oh my god, annoying! You could just freeze for a moment so I can for talk real. to this real person over here. <laughs> yes, so seriously. hey, I'm on board. I'm on board. Yes, I would take. <laughs> I'm, that for power. I'm for um, it. So she does go seek out these two women, and then she, through the process, becomes a medicine woman herself or something. I I don't know. I kind of blacked out at this point trying to read the rest of the book. After her training. Um, whatever it was, Andrews was entered into something called the Sisterhood of the Shields, which she describes as a, quote, a very private and anonymous gathering of shaman women of high degree from several native cultures around the world, end quote. Guided by these two women, Andrews has now written around 14 or 15 books and shares the teaching of the Sisterhood of the Shields with the women who read her books and attend her workshops. It's almost exclusively women that this is marketed towards women. According to her website today, you can enroll in her Shaman Mystery School for the low, low price of $3,100 a year. Transportation, meals, and lodging not included, of course. You know, if that's too much, you can have a private phone call with her for just $150 an hour. I'm sold. She's in. She's going. As new age evangelists like Sunbear, Castaneda, and Lynn Andrews, among many others, raked in cash with their best-selling books and expensive spiritual gatherings, real Indian religious leaders and activists got increasingly angry. In 1980, elders from several tribes, including Frank Fool's Crow, met at the North Cheyenne Reservation in Rosebud, Montana, and signed a document that has since been called the Resolution of the Fifth Annual Meeting of the Traditional Elders Circle. The resolution called out those purporting to be spiritual leaders for sharing sacred objects such as pipes and teaching non-Indians under the false pretenses that they are learning the, you know, quote unquote, true Native American spiritual beliefs. They didn't protest sharing the faith. In fact, they wrote that, quote, there are many things to be shared with the four colors of humanity in our common destiny as one with our mother, the earth, end quote. But rather they wrote, we concern ourselves only with those people who use spiritual ceremonies with non-Indian people for profit. And since the sharing of the faith was so sacred, it needed to be offered with, quote, great care by the elders and the medicine people who carry the sacred trusts. In 1984, a very good year, might I add, 
AIM, at the urging of the Circle of Elders, passed its own resolution condemning exploitative spiritual leaders that they had come to call plastic medicine men. The resolution noted that spiritual wisdom had been, quote, passed to us through the creation, and it was inseparable from the people themselves, making the attempted theft of Indian ceremonies a direct attack and theft from Indian people themselves, end quote. They specifically condemned the sale of sacred ceremonies, like, you know, in the form of a vision quest or a sweat lodge, and items such as pipes and feathers. I want to quote from the end of the resolution here, quote, our elders ask, are you prepared to take the consequences of your actions? You will be outcasts from your people if you continue these practices. Our young people are getting restless. They are the ones who sought their elders in the first place to teach them the sacred ways. They have said they will take care of those who are abusing our sacred ceremonies and sacred objects in their own way. In this way, they will take care of their elders. We resolve to protect our elders and our traditions, and we condemn those who seek profit from Indian spirituality. We put them on notice that our patience grows thin and they continue their disrespect at their own risk. End quote. The 1984 resolution mentioned Sunbear and Diana Yuahu by name, among other Indian purveyors of spiritual teaching. Because he was Indian, Sunbear touched a particular nerve with AIM for selling out, exploiting, and bastardizing Native American spirituality. Richard Williams, who served as president of the American Indian College Fund for over a decade, wrote that, quote, Sunbear isn't recognized as any sort of leader, spiritual or otherwise, among his own people. He's not qualified. It takes a lifetime of apprenticeship to become the sort of spiritual leader Sunbear claims to be. And he never went through any of that. He's just a guy who hasn't been home to the White Earth Reservation in 25 years, pretending to be something he's not, feeding his own ego and making his living misleading a lot of sincere but very silly people. Uh, Matthew King, a spiritual elder of the Lakota, wrote that mixing together the beliefs of different tribes was quote-unquote forbidden because they destroyed balance. He explained that the quote, forbidden things are acts of disrespect, things which unbalance power. These things must be learned, and the learning is very difficult. This is why there are very few real medicine men among us. Only a few are chosen. So in other words, you, you know, King is saying you can't just declare yourself a medicine man like Sunbear has. Uh, not long after the 1984 resolution, the Colorado chapter of AIM protested a Sunbear medicine wheel gathering, which participants had paid $500 a person to attend. And through the decade, AIM protested other spiritual gatherings. In 1993, the activist group Spirit which uh, support and protection of Indian religious and indigenous traditions, uh, confronted Lynn Andrews at the 1993 Whole Life Expo in L.A., asking her to, quote, admit that what she was writing about was fantasy, not Indian spirituality. Also in 1993, members of Spirit, along with members of the Lakota tribe, drew up another document, which was endorsed by 500 representatives of 40 tribes of the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota nations of the U.S. and Canada. 
This time, the resolution had a stronger name, a declaration of war against exploiters of Lakota spirituality. Like previous documents, this one described the abuses of the exploiters of Indian spirituality, but was more pointed in calling out the New Age movement and the buying and selling of Indian culture. They decried seeing sacred pipes, quote, at flea markets. They decried sun dances for non-Indians conducted by charlatans and cult leaders and also, quote, wannabes selling books that promote the systematic colonization of our Lakota spirituality. I think that's a really key phrase, the, the colonization of our spirituality. The document then went on to, quote, declare war on, quote, wannabes, charlatans, and what they called plastic medicine men, assuming a posture of zero tolerance for any white man's shaman who arises from within our own communities. All such plastic medicine men are enemies of the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota people. And they asked Indians to, quote, actively and vocally oppose this alarming takeover. But the plastic shamans weren't going to take it lying down. Lynn Andrews just continued to crank out books and run gatherings, although they were always aware that protesters could show up. And although Sun Bear died in 1992, his successors, Wabun Wind and Wind Daughter, keep the Bear Tribe, or whatever it's currently called, the Panther Panther Hill Mountain mm-hmm. Bear Tribe. It's got a very long name now. Um, they keep that continually going right still exists hayamaya hosts storm shot back with his own response to that lakota declaration storm was if you recall the guy who had dinner with lynn andrews um and he had written a book called seven arrows that like black elk speaks helped to popularize native american spirituality with the white public Uh, storm wrote in his own kind of response to lakota that the authors of the declaration had a, quote, violent chip on their shoulder and did not represent the Lakota people, ignoring, apparently, the 500 signers who had endorsed the statement. He wrote that the authors of the declaration, which he called hate literature, quote, live in the past. Modern Americans did not conquer Indians. Americans and our world's people need to hear from our reservations. They need to learn how humane and kind our native people are. When this happens, other Americans will listen to our people's social and political needs. End quote. So while Storm raised some really interesting points, he went on to spend kind of a bunch of mumbo jumbo about things like sweat lodges being a universal right practiced by ancient Europeans um, and making it not exclusively Lakota. So anyways, as all this is going on, the, the protests by AIM against people like Hayamaya hosts and Sun Bear, among other Indian spiritual gurus, really illustrate some central tensions between or within Native American spirituality. So this tension over who this spiritual teaching is for, how it should be shared, whether it should be shared for money, and who can practice it. Sun Bear, who had not apprenticed or been trained as a medicine man, um, should he be able to represent himself as a medicine man? Is it appropriate that he personally enrich himself from selling Lakota spiritual practices to a largely white public? 
most of the protest documents agreed that it was more or less okay for non-natives to learn about Lakota religion and Native American spirituality in general. But how and when were important questions. Particularly offensive was the idea that deeply sacred rituals were practiced in a casual manner, or that, again, largely white, spiritual seekers were like religion tourists, and that ceremonies and objects from different tribes and faiths were just jumbled up together. Gordon Olis of the Haudenosaunee observed that, quote, these contrived pseudo-Indian activities are tantamount to a non-believer taking the emblems of communion and passing them out along the trail as a snack, right? Like imagine somebody just handing mm-hmm. out the host, right, on yeah. a, on the yeah. uh, uh, street corner or something. Ward Churchill, a very outspoken Indian rights activist, wrote that such ceremonies, quote, undercut the integrity, the sanctity of the real traditions from which they draw, undermine them enough, and they'll disappear. But other Indians believe that Native spirituality can and should be shared outside of tribal membership. Frank Fool's Crow, as we discussed before, felt strongly that Lakota religion needed to be shared. Dorothy Black Crow Mack, who is white but is married into the Lakota tribe and worked for a long time as a caretaker for sacred Lakota Sundance grounds, has argued that Native Americans can't control who practices a faith and that it's acceptable for non-Natives to engage in Native faith practices as long as they essentially do the work. She says this, quote, we often told visitors that they couldn't Sundance at her husband's ceremonies. But not that they couldn't Sundance if they were fool enough to try without understanding the depth and power of that commitment. But of course, the other aspect of this has to do with fraud and exploitation. Carlos Castaneda, the anthropologist who became an international sensation for his writings inspired by the teaching of his shaman, Don Juan, was revealed to have lied about just about everything from his name to his experiences with Don Juan. Castaneda claimed to have lost all of his field notes from his time with Don Juan and then left a secondary manuscript he'd written that described, according to Amy Wallace, his training in a movie theater. Uh, Further research by Richard DeMille showed that Castaneda's work was inaccurate in its depictions of Yaqui terminology and other details, and that the quote-unquote revelations that were accurate had already been described by other anthropologists. From the early 1970s to the late 1990s, Castaneda lived in a compound near Los Angeles, where he lived with several beautiful young women in what was essentially a high-control cult. Five of his followers disappeared in 1998 after Castaneda's death, and the skeletal remains of Nuri Alexander were found in Death Valley. The other four women have never been found. Lynn Andrews is still out there charging thousands of dollars for her followers to become shamanic healers and teachers in their own right. And I am telling you that her website is worth a look, if only for the deranged photoshopped pictures of her with her power animal, the black wolf. Um, If you enroll in her classes, she will teach you the art of stalking, which sounds not good, but which is apparently actually stalking your objective at various times in your life and stalking the energy and wisdom it will take to accomplish it like a female wolf. Dude, <laughs> Friends, I, I just wish that you could see Elizabeth's this. face. Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They're wow. wonderful. 
this they're they're really these, wonderful. Yeah, this is not good <laughs> photoshopping. All right. Yeah. All right. I feel like she could do better. She could do better. With, um, that, with that kind of like entrance fee, she could definitely. Right, right. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth it, folks. Um, anyway, Sun Bear's Bear Tribe Medicine Society has now transformed, as we said before, into the Panther Lodge Bear Tribe Medicine Society, which is headed up by um, that white woman we mentioned before who calls herself Wind Daughter, who was an acolyte of Sun Bear and apparently was adopted by a Muscogee Creek man named Bearheart. So she did study with Sun Bear and also with Bearheart. Um, this is a common element in white people who teach Native American spirituality who claim to have or have been adopted into a tribe or adopted by a Native American elder, a practice that absolutely does happen and has a very long history in many tribes. But religious studies scholar Suzanne Owens explains that this still doesn't entitle the adoptee to call themselves a medicine person or a shaman. While this hasn't been made explicit, and I want to also say it doesn't also entitle them really to call themselves Native American, right? They're, they're still white people adopted into a tribe. It's it's This gets really messy, right? Um While this hasn't been made explicit in the protest documents, uh, Lakota spiritual elder Arval Looking Horse has stated that the seven rights belong to those who are ethnically Lakota, meaning that they need to be on the tribal roll with proof of their blood quantum, not simply adopted ceremonial into the tribe, and that it's um, limited to those who can speak the Lakota language. Um, This also allows for some control over the ceremonies. Looking Horse has stated that limiting the practice in this way allows him to better ensure that the ceremonies are performed correctly and gives him the ability to intervene if they aren't. Of course, this is very tricky territory. Some Native Americans reject the federal government's system of the blood quantum, which is essentially your genealogical or blood, quote unquote, blood proof of Native lineage. And there are big debates around how to define Native American identity. And don't a lot of those blood quotas go back to the Dawes Act? I I think so about yeah. how you prove that you are a member right. of the tribe in order to get like government like for instance like that we mentioned the Native American College Fund mm-hmm. like in order to access that fund you have to be able to prove you you have a blood quantum right through these government um, created documents right and, yeah, exactly because they don't right. want to just be handing out money to people who say they're Native American and aren't really but it, it varies from tribe to tribe which tribes require a blood quantum, which ones require that you, you know, just be on the tribal role, which ones have no requirements whatsoever. And so like, I guess the point there for me is when someone says, well, I was adopted by the Muscogee Creek and therefore I am a Muscogee shaman, like take that with a big grain of salt, because that doesn't necessarily mean that the tribe would recognize them as native American. They might. Right. And that's up to the tribe, not me. Um, But that's, you know, every tribe sort of has their own way of navigating that. 
So there, there isn't an easy way to end this episode because these issues aren't resolved. Despite Ames protests and the various protest documents like the Declaration of War, people like Lynn Andrews and Wind Daughter continue to preach and they teach their own versions of Native American spirituality and ceremonies. This very summer at Lilydale, a man named John Two Hawks, who has been labeled a fraud by Native American activists, will lead a seminar. And in years past, um, Lilydale has hosted numerous sweat lodge ceremonies. And people have been harmed by ceremonies led by poorly trained non-Native practitioners. Just in 2009, two people died and 18 people were hospitalized because of their participation in a sweat lodge ceremony led by New Age ghoul James Arthur Ray. And in 2011, he was convicted of negligent homicide. So... All of this is really messy. It continues to be really messy. I think my takeaway personally, and, and maybe I went into this kind of already having this idea, but the, the research I did really confirmed it for me, is that I personally do not want to take part in a ceremony that the the people who own that ceremony don't want outsiders taking part in. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like, yeah. I don't feel yeah. like it's appropriate for me to take part in a sweat lodge unless it was like, you know, some kind of situation where I was a, an anthropologist and I had established relationships with the tribe and I was invited by an elder and it was okay with the tribal council or whatever. Right. Like that, that can happen and it happens all the time with anthropologists um, and with other people who have relationships with tribes, but it makes me awfully uncomfortable that new age practitioners make money off of these kinds of of rights and sell vision quests and have spirit mm-hmm. animals and this kind of cheapening of of real deep native american traditions especially when there is a long history in the united states of not allowing native americans to practice their faiths without yeah. being harassed and imprisoned right yeah yeah so Yeah, no, I mean, as you're talking, I'm just thinking, like, I don't even know how to how to say this, but like, you know, you could go to some kind of, you know, fancy spa or whatever and probably find some kind of like sweat lodge, uh, you know, sweating type of, you know, cleansing ritual. Right. Which might not even mention anything about Native Americans or you know, that this is some kind of religious thing, but that it's been so co-opted into, you know, white, uh, you know, healing, uh, well-being, wellness kind of, um, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, whatever it is now, you know, this, this commodification of, um, what you want to call traditional medicine or, or, or what have you, like, how do you even, how do you even unpack that? Right. From its colonialized roots, you know, yeah. or, 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 or you just straight out say like, th- this is colonialism that we've been, you know, uh, participating in and, and we have to stop. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, like those are, those are really and- like nasty questions. Um, and it just make it just, I don't know, for me, it just, it's, it's just so eye opening for how colonialism works into, you know, our everyday um absolutely white society yeah and, 
And I'll say, um, I've been reading this book. Um, it didn't make it as much into this episode, but it will in the the book chapter that I'm working on based on this episode. Um, by remember you mentioned the scholar Vine Deloria, mm-hmm. um, Native Native American Studies scholar. Um, his son Philip Deloria is also a Native American Studies and, and history um, scholar. And he wrote a book about exactly what you're talking about, which is called Playing Indian, which is a classic in the the kind of the, the this field. And kind of chapter by chapter, he talks about the way that Native Americans themselves are disenfranchised and removed from American society while we keep all of the bits about America, about Native American culture that we find interesting or compelling or useful. Right. Mm-hmm. So we keep the sweat lodge, we keep the the vision quest, we keep the spirit animal, but we relegate the Native American to the reservation and we don't want to look at the reservation. We don't want to deal mm-hmm. with the, the problems that real living Native Americans have to deal with. And and this is actually exactly what what I wanted to kind of get into when we first started this Lilydale project because I was so struck by the fact that you can't turn around at Lilydale without seeing, you know, turkey feathers and mm-hmm. um, uh, what are they called? Dream catchers. Dream catchers. And, yeah. You know, well, all, yeah. images of Native Americans. And then just a couple of miles away is the Seneca Nation reservation, which they, and there's no connection. Right. There's no there's no real connection between real. those two. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Well, and I think that, too, gets into, like, the deeper, um, I don't know, questions or co-opting of, of Lilydale from a spiritualism community to one of, of New Age, uh, this, you know, I don't know, pseudo-religious New Age, right? So, like, you can't mm-hmm. go into any kind of, um, I don't know, spiritual store or what have you with also without also running into, you know, Tibetan prayer flags yes, next right. to a didgeridoo next to, right. um, you know, a sage, sage for burning, you know, next mm-hmm. to uh, totem animals that, you know, will speak to you next to a tarot deck that has, you know, both the Virgin Mary and um, I, I don't know. Like I, Ganesh or something. Yeah, right. Right. right <laughs> exactly. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah, this is it. It is all very jumbled up together and and it's pulling all with these threads apart is is complicated and that's why i feel like in this episode hopefully we illuminated some of that but like i understand that people are gonna kind of walk away sort of feeling like well i don't totally know what i do with this yeah exactly (laughs) because i mean activists themselves are split on these things still today Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. um i don't know i found it really interesting and useful hopefully um, listeners do as well. Yeah. Um, thank so, you, Sarah. well, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, and you said you didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> I know. And then here we go. Just blooming, we have to give, blossoming. we have to let Elizabeth rest her voice now. Yeah. Um, so Y'all, that's COVID it for today. Is awful. Wear your masks. Don't yes. get it. It sucks. Yeah. 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 Really totally. Anyway, sorry. That's okay. So, that's it for this episode. Um, make sure that you listen to the other episodes in this particular four episode series, um, all sort of tied to our um, our new book that is going to be coming out someday <laughs> in the future through Cornell University Press on 
you know, various aspects of new age religion and um, sort of their historical roots. Um, you can email us at hello at bigpodcast.org. You can follow us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. Um, even though I'm very bad at keeping up with all of them, you can find us there. Um, you can become a patron. Am I forgetting, Elizabeth? Educator resources on our website as well, digpodcast.org. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're an yeah. educator and want to use podcasts mm-hmm. in your classroom. Absolutely. We've got full transcripts. We've got images. We've got all of our show notes. All of the, the sources that we use for every episode are hyperlinked and footnoted and all of that um, on the website as well if you're looking to dig <laughs> further into this topic. Oh Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earl. Thanks for listening. Um, this was the 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 protest that um, during the I think it's the 1973 Oscars ceremony. Um, Oh my god, now that I'm telling this story, I can't think of his f***ing name. Uh, Marlon Brando? Thank you, Marlon Brando. Um, he writes this um, to... Hold on, who, who was he writing to? To Price. Oh, Hiram Price. And the plant was beautiful, and now we are about to destroy oh. it. I'm sorry, I think that's supposed to be planet. And the planet was... I was like... No, oh, is okay. that how you say that, bees? I have no idea. Okay, good. Because I've heard it these and viz. So okay, good. It's like okay. one of those things that's not really meant to be read out loud. Read out loud, exactly. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Wait, is it Spokane? I it's think Spokane. It's however you pronounce it. I say Spokane because I think it's just okay. Because I said like Spokane. I thought you when you said it, I was like, like that is a very middle ground way of saying it. And it's not really good. That's what I was going for. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound, sound like a white lady butchering these words. I'm sure it does. Right. Light ladies butchering words. I, right. Like, I'm, I'm doing my best. You should never ask how something is pronounced. Now. <laughs> All right. Um, really don't gross. let me forget to ask you. I want to know who does your hair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.